I don't want to say that the new Elvis Costello album is long, so I won't. But seriously, folks, the only album bigger than the new Elvis Costello album has photos of the King family in it. The new Elvis Costello album on Columbia Records and Tapes has more bands than a Redwood. I don't want to say it's a big album, but instead of a record number, it's got a zip code. I want to tell you, the new Elvis Costello album has more tracks than the Tokyo subway system. More cuts than Midnight Cowboy on TV. There are three kinds of people who like the album. People under 21, people over 21, and people who turn 21 during the record. Any more songs on the album and it would need an index. Everybody in the world has a favorite song on the album, all different. But seriously, friends, Elvis Costello fights inflation on his new album, Get Happy. Get, get happy. 20 new hits by the original artist on Columbia Records and Tapes. I'm Eugene Edwards. And I'm Dave Rayburn. And this is a very special side pod episode of The, the Jukebox, Jukebox Graduate. Graduate. We're just we're gonna celebrate the 40th anniversary of the release of an album that was very, very dear to me in my adolescence, and I think it was close to you as well. Dave, uh, right? Yes, totally. And we are doing that we're recording this far from each other. Um, <laughs> we we still love we, each other, but we do, we do. Just following cool. directions. We get, exactly. We're social distancing, but we're also trying to create content because yes. uh, this is what the 16th day of March and uh, we're kind of under quarantine as a nation as it were. Yeah. But of course uh, we want to kind of let the world go on normal as much as possible. And uh, the album is Elvis Costello in the attractions get happy. Yes. Which as a sentence sounds really weird. <laughs> Elvis Costello in the attractions get happy. But, but it's, it's accurate. I mean, Somewhat, it's somewhat accurate. So a, a little background on this. Okay, so this thing came out in February of 1980. It was recorded when, Dave? Uh, it was recorded in October of 1979. Okay, so it's Elvis Costello's fourth album. Yeah. Nicolo is still the producer, as he always has been. It's the third album he does with the Attractions, with his backing band. Um, this becomes very significant. Uh, Costello does the first album. He essentially borrows a band in England and cuts it quickly. And they, they assemble a band to be his, his live band to tour, and then eventually he'll be recording with them. They do this year's model, which is very edgy and mm -hmm. very punky yeah. and aggressive. And it's got that Farfisa organ, so it's kind of got this different tone. Then they do the third album, which is Armed Forces, uh, which is very icy pop. As Costello said, they listen to a lot of ABBA and David Bowie. So the piano has that high octave chime to it, and um, best heard on Oliver's Army. Um, but the lyrics are extremely dark. In fact, the, the working title for the album was going to be Emotional Fascism, um, <laughs> which is pretty spooky. Right. Um, there's a lot of, you know, social design, um, social engineering, corporate structure, 
and 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 military fascism allusions and references made and but yet it all seems to be about relationships anyway yeah. um one of the last ones chemistry class actually asks are you ready for the final solution um wow yeah they go on to but this is a massive hit for Elvis costello he's a proper pop star at this point uh, in many ways and uh his momentum is incredible because he's at the same time writing material that is you know becoming hits for other people uh uh and oh, linda ronstadt uh, right linda ronstadt did yeah um I, the chronology is going to get mixed up for me here because uh, you know uh but yeah, people were jumping on on the bandwagon to cover his tunes quickly because he he was really really hot at the time. While they're on tour in the United States in around April of '79, the band got in a drunken argument with Stephen Stills and Bonnie Bramlett, or or members of Stephen Stills' touring band at the time. They were yeah. in Columbus, Ohio, at a Holiday Inn, mm-hmm. and uh, to try and goad the Americans into a, a true fight, uh, I think they really wanted some fists to be thrown. Costello <laughs> used a terrible, terrible uh, racial epithet yeah. about James Brown and Ray Charles, which was uh, uh, the final straw for uh, Bonnie Bramlett, as the story goes, because she she finally attacked uh, uh, Costello and, yeah. and sent him to the to the floor sprawling, uh, deservedly so. Uh, the apology is a few days later. Costello says, "I was drunk." I was just trying to bring the conversation to a swift conclusion, uh, you know, and and. He just sort of the apology was pretty sloppy. And then, by the way, at this point, Costello's being really cagey with the press. He's not doing, he, he hadn't been doing a lot of interviews up until that point, and anything he did say was designed to be very provocative and to anger people. Correct. So, so he he played into the uh, the web of the press in a, in a very stupid way at this point. And by the way, this is before obviously we always say this is before the internet, so it doesn't go viral. There's not footage yeah. of it. It becomes, it's an incident that's, he doesn't deny, but it, it, it sits on the alleged side of things, but uh, it doesn't help him at all. And this is almost my last word on the matter. One thing became clear to me in time. That Ohio evening may have very well saved my sorry life. I fear an obituary might have appeared not too much later, just a few short lines lamenting my unfulfilled promise on the occasion of my tawdry demise. When I say this, I do not refer to the many anonymous people who offered to shoot me, but to the emptiness that I was already feeling and my ferocious pursuit of oblivion. So what if my career rolled back off the launching pad? Life eventually became a lot more interesting due to this failure to get into some undeserved and potentially fatal orbit. They continued on the tour. Um, They struggled through through that summer. And then uh, Costello, of course, never short of material. They start working up songs for the fourth album while they're on tour. And as Costello mentions, they they were the new songs were were kind of um, falling into this arrangement and sound that was essentially this very new wave icy pop thing they developed on the Armed Forces tour. Yeah. And Costello says something like, the songs were, we were starting to develop a, a band sound, which is something they all hated. They didn't want to be a band with a particular sound. Right, right. That's very, now that's crucial here because I think Costello had always thought he was going to be a songwriter like Randy Newman, not so much a performer. Billy Joel, I actually thought the same thing for himself too. He thought that he would just write songs for people, but then you end up having to cut a demo, which becomes an album, and then now you have to go out and play the songs live. Right, right. You're the guy. 
so, so, so Costello has this band, Bruce Thomas, Pete Thomas, and Steve Naive, that can, they can just play anything. So it actually ends up being the perfect band for him because, as we know, as we go through the 80s, he's going to do this genre hopping. Every album is going to be a different, right. a different genre, and he's not going to change bands, really. And it's really impressive that those guys can just hang. Right. Who else was doing that? <sighs> what what bands stay no together and, and, and change so drastically from album no to album? No one at that pace. They yeah. were putting out an album a year. Yeah. I mean, they were putting out an album year up until, what, 86? In fact, I think one year they put out two albums. Um, yeah. So it's really impressive. And I remember uh, Nick Lowe was on Adam Carolla's podcast a while back. And Carolla just plays uh, Elvis Costello's version of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. Mm-hmm. You just hear it playing. And Carolla <laughs> asked Nick Lowe, why is this so good? Why is this so good? And Nick Lowe paused. He says, that band was a force to be reckoned with. Like the man who wrote the song and produced that particular record, even he couldn't quite explain it other than to say, <laughs> that's that band. I think Nick Lowe really did. And uh, they, I think, you know, and, and I don't know if it was Roger. Bakir, uh, yeah, it was uh, Roger Bakirian was the engineer on the Get Happy album. A guy that doesn't get enough credit. He's behind the boards on a couple of great squeeze albums as well. Oh, yeah. But okay. it seems those those guys really just turned on the microphones and let this band be what it was. And so. They go to to make the album at at, at I don't know if I'm saying this right Wissa Lord Studios in Hilversum, Netherlands, and I think they were they went out there to be isolated and be away from the distractions. Yeah. Uh, particularly after the scandal and what have you, uh, maybe some chemical distractions. But it turns out there was a pub around the corner anyway. We went back to Holland to record Get Happy. I was slightly drunk in the back of a taxi and leaving a diner where I'd silently pledged unquenchable desire for the beautiful waitress behind the counter. I wrote Possession during that ten-minute ride back to Whistlerd Studios, and we cut the song as soon as we got through the door, while the blood was still pumping. Steve Naive went to the piano, and I played my faulty memory of the opening horn anthem from Is Your Love In Vain on a Hammond organ, despite my song having completely different harmony and being taken at a considerably faster tempo. It was a steal, But then the first line of my song was also, If There's Anything That You Want, and nobody seemed to care that this was also the opening line of From Me To You by the Beatles. So (laughs) they, and and I, the rumor I heard was that the jukebox there at that one pub was stocked with Tamla, Stax, and Motown records. Did you ever hear that? Did you read that I didn't hear that part, no. Yeah. That was just sort of the music that was being played in the pub where they would, to which they would retire. Um, but Casello also, I think, had been stocking up on a lot of singles. Is that right? Yeah, his book that came out just a couple of years ago, Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink, he does talk a little bit about um, his effort to sort of get away from that cliche sound of the band that they were starting to get after, uh, mm-hmm. especially after that second and third record. Which, by the way, just shows that's a lot of nerve, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> because it takes so long. It, look, for, it's one thing to, to become a successful artist at all, to get any attention and get any traction going and to be on tour and actually sell records. And you would think that once you, if you, if you're in that stride, you do nothing to upset that apple cart. And then these guys just decide, uh, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to comfortably have a sound that we can just reproduce at a win. Yeah, you you think about like the, the the big singles that actually came off that third record too. You know that uh, yeah. you, you think on that success, you know, with like Oliver's Army and what's so funny about mm-hmm. peace, love, and understanding. That you, you think that uh, don't mess with that formula, 
Right. But then this very next record, he's already eyeing the idea of let's rearrange things. Let's not rearrange us. Let's just rearrange our sound. And right. they're the same songs because there are uh, there are reissues of this album that have included um, early recordings, early demos of these songs that were written for Get Happy yep. that sound exactly like the, the, the formula of the previous records that would have mm-hmm. been the continuation of that sound. But uh, as Elvis said in his book, you know, well, we'll let him speak a little bit about it. Right. I here. went to Rock On, the secondhand record shop in Camden Town, and bought every old Stax 45 that they had on their shelf and carried them home to plunder. It never occurred to me that I had ended up in the front room with a stack of singles to learn, just like my dad had done. Almost everything we needed to arrange the new songs was pilfered from that pile of old records. A lot of pop music has come out of people failing to copy their model and accidentally creating something new. The closer you get to your ideal, the less original you sound. Our cack-handed, wired-up attempts to play like the bands we'd heard on Motown and Atlantic compilations were just enough to get us away from our clichés. But back then, I was dreaming about being anyone but myself. I, for one, am grateful that they went into a different direction. Because the darkness (laughs) that was in the lyrics of Armed Forces continues, but the music is so jovial. Yes, yeah, it's such a contrast. There was a a paranoia that was very, very apparent – like I said, the set, this year's model is very nervy. It's nervous, I should say, almost jittery. Armed Forces is just flat-out paranoid. And then Get Happy, the first thing we hear, in my opinion, because you could, we could have a debate as to what is side one and what is side two, because the packaging is purposefully misleading. Yeah. But in my heart, the first song on this album is Love for Tender. Yeah. Right? Is that same for you? It is, yeah. I think it's somewhat settled because I think if you go and buy this album yeah, on it, iTunes, Love for Tender comes up first. Yeah. And, and Riot Act is the very last song, Correct. which, by the way, it's 20 songs. Yes. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. Love for Tender is the first thing you hear, and it's clearly uh, You Can't Hurry Love by the Supremes. With that beat, yeah. Um, and, and then it rolls into Elvis just going to an endless stream of, of wordplay. Uh, obviously, we've got Love for Tender. Yeah, he's pretty good at that wordplay stuff. It's <laughs> He really <laughs> develops it. The word tender is spun around, yeah. uh, and it's all money and uh, economic references. But um, I'll tell you, one of the, the sonic highlights of this album for me, and this is a weird one, but just the way that Love for Tender cause goes by in a flash, as most of these songs barely clock in at two minutes. Yeah, the whole album's like 48 minutes, and that's 20 songs. Yeah, it's really that's impressive. that's pretty much three Grateful Dead songs, or uh, <laughs> or what side side one of Thick as a Brick? I don't know. It's the way Love for Tender ends with just this in this rush, and then there's this silence, and then the soft and the way that opportunity the yeah. next song starts, yeah, which is is a very like kind of Hodges Brothers Memphis soul vibe. And then, and, you know, and then the next song, The Imposter, is it like it, all four of those guys are racing towards something. It goes by so fast. And similarly, it fades out quickly. And then the next song is Secondary Modern, which has this beautiful, uh, again, very Memphis, Al Green sort of vibe to it. Yeah. The, the pacing of this record is, is very, very well done, I think. But uh, anyway, I always assumed that the studio that was secluded out in the Netherlands was probably some little 
humble little thing. And that was why the record had the tone it did. But it, it was a very state-of-the-art studio. It had only been open for like a year or two. The police and 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 Genesis had been there, and uh, so it's a very it was a very modern state of the art play. It's still in business now. Oh, is it? But but the point is, is that these guys made this record sound this way very very much on purpose. Yeah, they had to go out of the way to make it sound like it was an old soul record from the '60s. So I'm holding my copy. I have my copy right here. Hang on, let me let me let me take it out of the plastic here. I got it. I got my copy sometime in the late '80s, and it did not have the faded. So when you got it at the time, the 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 if some of you are listening probably have it. Remember this: it it already had. You know how the the piece of vinyl would actually wear uh wear out the artwork. It'd be like this little the circular this twelve inch circle circle. Of yeah, fade. if it's if it's been in the bin long enough, or it's been pulled in and out, yeah. Right. So they, Barney Bubbles, who's the uh, the uh, art director on these things, he made it look like that, like <laughs> already, like like pre-worn jeans sort of thing. But mine did not have that wear when I got it. I remember being disappointed. And as I pulled this, uh, was that the U.S. version that, I don't that, know. that did I don't not know. have the wear? Because the one I'm holding, Maybe. I have the the 1980 uh, UK pressing, which oh. features the uh, the worn. Um, label ring on the front cover mm. and on the back side it actually features the ring the wear ring of the outside the edge of the record all the way around um gotcha. on the flip and it's got this great sticker uh in the top right corner that says 20 great hits i mean 20 hits i mean they're all <laughs> these are 20 great songs but that's like a bold statement to say all of them are hits and we have 20 sorry, of them <laughs> we have 20 of them too <laughs> But it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's it was made to look like a dance record too, is is what uh, what I understand. And I think so. It's a it looks like a party record. And, and so the exclamation points, and it's it's great pop art design. Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, it's beautiful. So smart. But I'm, I'm proud to say that as I pull my copy out today uh, to look at it to record the episode, mine naturally now has the wear on it. <laughs> a well a well loved record. Oh, it was a well loved record when I was. Uh, a young teenager, I, I caught up with this record, and I was, uh, I felt very isolated. I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't have a girlfriend. And uh, I hated anybody that had a relationship. And this album was perfect. Um, Stella seems to have contempt for anybody that's in a relationship. Uh, he has contempt for himself for wanting to be in a relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and... It's it's just it's a it's a great great album for uh, adolescent self indulgence. Yeah, and that's um, I think that's exactly the time when I right? discovered it myself, where I was uh, mm -hmm. I was missing something, and I was finding the solace of you know like this some compassion uh, from the singer, you know that okay he, he understands, and uh, and I can I can see my story in several of these songs, and okay I feel like this is comfortable. Let me hang here for a while. 20 big hits. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 20 big hits, and my anger is well suited for them. Right. Um, but one more thing about the tone of this record, though, is it's 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 similar to like that first REM record, most Talking Heads records. Um, it is it is a rock record, but since the the guitar tones are clean, there's really no distortion on the record, which is unusual when we're talking about rock and roll. Yeah. But because it leans on that soul and R&B. And that white boy soul, particularly, um, it's it's definitely a, a fantastic rock album. This album cannot exist if not for the history of rock and roll in some way. Uh, whether it's the the wordplay of Dylan, 
where there's the rhythm section of Motown. Um, it, it it just it relies on it in a, in a way that we always talk about Springsteen on relying on rock history. This does the same, but um, but this one has a very very strange. It, it is made to look like it was cheaply done. It it is it is engineered to sound as if it was cheaply recorded. It's ten songs per side, yeah. and apparently the, the sonic sacrifice, uh, as Nick Lowe calls it, groove jamming. <laughs> yeah. Some of the liner notes here yeah. is that if you Okay, if you were to put this album and shuffle it in between other albums, you, you you notice that there's a drop in volume when you put this one on. So I always heard that there was a German pressing of this album where, where it's a little louder, it's a little better sounding. Yeah, with, with a little more fidelity, so to speak. More fidelity, so, so to speak. <laughs> um, and then also I had seen uh, like a, a double album version of it yeah yeah the word they they did it they broke up the songs on two discs it's i think it's i want to say it's at speed 45 too to give you even higher fidelity but i've heard that it didn't really sound any better like they went through the trouble but it didn't make an appreciable difference it's a state of mind right right it is a state of mind those germans um uh, so we, you know, so obviously people should run out and even just get it on Spotify if it's on Spotify or get it on iTunes because it's such a great listen. And yeah. I'll tell you what, it, you'll be surprised at how fast this thing goes by. So it goes by so fast you may have missed some of the wordplay. Now, I have okay because this album doesn't come with a lyric sheet, so I had right. misheard a lot of stuff. I don't know that I ever come across the word the rigmarole or rigmarole. Rigmarole, yeah. And so it's in a temptation. Now that you've shackled them to the ring, I thought you were saying now that you've shackled them to Marilyn Monroe. I didn't know. What was oh, lost. I, was I love that really, line. Really, Are you going to use that? Very morbid. Uh, I will now. Oh my God. Uh, I, I've been known to, I'm, I'm not kidding. That's really what I thought. One of my other favorite lyrics off the album is from Love for Tender. You can total up the balance sheet and never know if I'm a counterfeit. Which the, the pronunciation <laughs> is, you know, I don't know if that's like legit on that side of the lake, but. Uh, I think it is, but yeah, he's a killer to a feet. I mean, right. just, his pronunciations are <laughs> it's, It was hard for me top. to not sing that and just speak it. Here's, let me just like run through like really quickly. I'm just going to like pepper our audience with some great stuff. Because my point is, after living through this album as a kid, the standard that it set for what I expected from a lyricist was, was pretty twisted. Cheap cut satin and bad perfume. Showtime is almost here. You won't take my love for tender. He's got double vision when you want him double jointed. Here's a great one. Because this has a Sam Cooke and George Jones reference all in one. Okay, bring it. Somewhere in the distance, I can hear who shot Sam. This is my conviction that I am an innocent man. Yep. Um, he can fix you all for good because he is the neighborhood. He's like he's the hoodlum of the neighborhood, but he gets he gets away with. But he can fix you all for good because he is the neighborhood. Um, now, here's what I didn't understand because I didn't really. I guess it's more of a British thing that if something's really pricey, they call it dear. If it's a bit expensive, it's mm. it's a bit dear. So I never understood that there was something extra in the line. He'd seen love get so expensive, but he'd never seen love so dear. Oh, okay. Um, That's a regional thing. It's a bit of a regional thing. Here's another. <laughs> there's here's one that just breaks my heart. When it's someone else's weekend, that's the best you can expect. And then um, from the song "High Fidelity," which is definitely one of the top five high points of the whole album, and I think of Cristela's career. There's a new kind of dedication. Maybe you'll find it down the tunnel. 
maybe I got above my station. Maybe you're only changing channel. High fidelity, the whole thing is a pun. No, that's great because we take the word fidelity. We just think yeah, of sound. Of yeah. course, he's going to take it and mean it in that faithful uh, relationship way. Do you think he just purposely like found all the words with double meanings and said, I'm going to write songs around these? I, ima- no, I imagine. I know that he was in the habit. He was always collecting phrases and words and things on the road. Yeah. He was always just, and I think this, I think it was really an idea of, he, honestly, he said he was buying tons of R- 45s when he was in America. And you mm-hmm. probably saw over and over again the labels references to, to fidelity and sound. And that word fidelity just must have, it must have just struck him that there's two meanings to this word fidelity. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that song starts with a Supremes lyric. Now, he's also really great at mentioning other songs in his songs. He's never afraid to do that. And this goes with some things you never get used to, which is the actual, that's the actual title of the Supreme song. And, and he just runs with this high fidelity. And then the chorus, high fidelity, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Um, in the relationship, he's with someone else. She's with someone else. And he's still trying to connect somehow. Um, and of course, it was the source of the, I assume it's the source of the, title of Nick Hornsby's uh, book, right, yeah, which then yeah. became the John Cusack film, which is now a Hulu series. Yes. Um, I think the song probably had a profound influence on a lot of disaffected, brainy, loner kids in the 80s <laughs> that went on to create things. Because right. I feel like it's, it's, it, it sort of has, has, has kind of lasted throughout his catalog. And, and he's, I mean, he's just wiped out drunk. On the, on the vocal on this thing too, you can tell mm. he has no voice. He's just sloppy drunk, <laughs> and that kind of adds to this the desperation of the thing. Um, but the band is so good, the rhythm oh is so God. good. Those chord changes, by the way, this is really, really uh, in "Love for Tender." The chords go by really quickly. Uh, in "High Fidelity," the changes are brilliant. Um, he's just dripping with ideas at this point. And um, uh, one last. Uh, a great, great lyric to me. I've always wanted to close out an episode with this, but I'll, I'll waste it here. <laughs> Let's waste it. Cause this just, <laughs> uh, this is from riot act. The final song on the oh, album. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to be so bad is bad enough. Don't make me laugh by talking tough. Don't put your heart out on your sleeve when your remarks are off the cuff. God, that, that is yeah. probably my favorite song on the record. And it's the one that it's, it's the one that really doesn't match the rest of the record so much but i think uh, even elvis has said it's the most enduring song off the album i think um when we made get happy i had a bunch of songs which sort of sounded like new wave by now, now they put a label on everything that was coming out of london around that time and a few things in america and we even started to play like that this sort of nervy way and i suppose it was nervy kind of times and got into all sorts of mishaps and I didn't really think it was the way I was feeling. And there were a bunch of things that happened in in my professional life and in my personal life that certainly didn't jag with that kind of nervy kind of way of playing anymore. And I started to go back to the records that I liked. Now, some of them were soul records, as we called them, R&B records from Stax and Motown and Curtis Mayfield. Obviously, I couldn't sing like that, but we took some of the rhythms in some of it. And other things were things that I also loved, like I loved Mind Games by John Lennon. And I think that a little bit of that kind of sound got into Riot Act, um, and uh, it, it's 
it's it's a more regretful song than many of the others on that record. Though Get Happy is pretty much was sort of put out to imitate, even in its appearance, um, uh, a dance record from the sixties. Is like a you know big beat kind of dance record of like like Motown would put out or some label like that. But it, it did have a few ballads on it that didn't fit that bill. And the right act in the end is probably the song that endures more than some of the <laughs> some of the rave up numbers. Maybe, and I think some you could read into it that it's him addressing the Ohio incident. Yeah, right, right. There's also so to me the high, it's either High Fidelity or Riot Act. Uh, those things just are, have been high, are high points for me. Yeah, it's funny you said that. Riot, you're right. Riot Act does seem to sit apart from the rest of the well, material. You know it's, what? It, maybe it's because it's it ends on that note. You know, like that the album sort of ends on that. Um, it's just it's a little a little unsettling i guess i mean well you listen to how the album mm-hmm. starts and it's you're dancing right away you're yep. like you're you're moving and the album keeps you moving throughout and uh you know there are some softer spots but you think with an album like this end on a you know end with an encore type tune you know like well, something's like, because like, most most people would have ended with i stand accused a cover of the mercy beats I stand accused, yeah. which is just ramped up. It rocks. It just blows through like a like a hurricane, and it's fun, and it's jovial, and it's yeah. breathless, and it's unbelievable. But it doesn't end there. No. It goes with this extremely slow, heavy track, which feels very much like an Armed Forces track because of some of the studios kind of kind of the way that it sounds. Oddly enough, one of these twenty songs was not recorded there in Holland and part of these sessions, and that's New Amsterdam, which he pretty much did by himself somewhere in somewhere in England on a on a one off. Um, also love how in the uh, uh, on the back album cover, five gears in reverse. The uh, the F and five is actual a number five. Yeah, I think that inspired Prince, right? I think that's a, that set off the whole Prince thing. Sure. Yeah, he set up the um, whole Prince template right there. <laughs> that's right. And then there's these great musical loops. I mentioned, you know, the love for tender opening up with the "You Can't Hurry Love" yeah. intro. I think which worked um, really well for Paul Weller too. That town jam. called Malice had that yeah. thing very yeah. much. I think that was a great. And then Phil Collins just flat out just did the Supreme Song. Over <laughs> he really did, you know. He did. And then T- Temptation, I believe that's Time Is Tight by Booker T and the MGs, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Okay, so couple of side topics here. First of all, so I think we discussed it. Which side? How does this album start and end? What, what's the running order to you? What's what's side one and what's side two? Seems like we agree on this, in spite of what the album cover says on the back well here's the thing i did get the record during the the cd age um Uh and and that's how i ingested it to begin with uh Mm. so i was used to that and i i rarely that was this is one of those albums that i don't shuffle through and i don't skip songs it's it's to be taken in i never do and that's how i had always listened to it from the very beginning so the cd version that order is exactly what what I'm used to here. So let me, let me pull up my Spotify here and I can tell you what it shows. And obviously uh, the, uh, the back of the sleeve on the record shows, shows different. And if anybody, if any Jukebox graduates out there ever heard it the other way around, let us know. I, I just, I don't, I think it's not as good of a record as also, you know, because otherwise the back cover says side one is I can't stand up falling down in a black and white world in a five years in reverse. Of course, starting with the single, I Can't Stand Up For Falling Down, a cover of Sam and Dave's uh, I Can't Stand Up For Falling Down. Which, mm. And Costello had a hit with it, particularly in England. But for this thing to, for side one to end with Riot Act, 
and for the whole album to end with high fidelity. That doesn't work for me. It just doesn't. No, work it doesn't. But, yeah. but of course, my vinyl uh, on the inside sleeve, the vinyl has side one starting with Love for Tender, and side two starting with I Can't Stand Up. So that that to me was that became gospel. But Spotify, I assume, agrees with us. Spotify does agree with us. Uh, Opens with Love for Tender. Album closes with uh, Riot Act. But I, uh, you know, I can't tell you um, how side one ends or side two ends necessarily from the CD um, as I as I played it continuously all the way through. Also, now you mentioned the cover artwork. Uh, Now the picture of Costello, I thought he was standing in such an awkward pose, and the angle so weird. Until I found out later on, the picture was actually taken. He's lying down on the ground on over a street grate somewhere. Oh. <laughs> so he's, and so on. And so when you flip it over, the, the attractions are also in a very awkward pose, but that's because they're laying down on the ground as well. Wow. It just looks so, like they're leaning they just, up against a just, wall or something. No, they're laying, they're laying flat on the ground. Um, here's, here's a great question because again, we mentioned the, the band, the attractions on this album, who's the most valuable attraction. All right. So for me, uh, I got to say that Bruce Thomas's performance on I Stand Accused, you know, the, the aerobatic bass figures, uh, the harmonica solo, by the way, the yeah. are top notch. However, I think that Steve Naive takes a prize with his swirling performances throughout the, the heavily wow. keyboard driven album. Because Boy, it is. That's true. it's just, it's from track to track. He stands out more than any, anybody else to me and, okay. and different so- styles too. Okay, there's. It's impossible to have a wrong answer on this one. Um, I, the case for Steve Mays is 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 pretty easy to make. You're right, and in th- that they're making this soul album, basically, it's going to be keyboard heavy. So he yeah, he he's he's really. But can we listen to the intro to um, Human Touch? So they, they, they borrow this great ska trick of just throwing delay on the whole thing. But for Pete Thomas and his intro, his drum intro to, to, to be that good, you've, you've got to be perfectly in time. Otherwise, the delay will, will expose the flaw. And I think that the fact that Pete can easily handle not just the, the, the various parts of the kit that he has to use, like in secondary, modern, like um, in uh, opportunity, uh, the way he plays on Love for Tender, for sure, mm-hmm. but, and and, the, and just the stamina of I Stand Accused. Um, and I love the Tom sound in High Fidelity, too. Mm-hmm. Great fills. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he has to do this at such a quick pace. Um, but uh, but he's not my most valuable attraction. It's got to be Bruce Thomas. It is Bruce Thomas, the bass player. Oh, I, we I got just him covered think, then, okay. We've got him covered, because <laughs> just the intro to B-Movie alone. Without him, I don't know if another bass player handles this material with the right amount of respect and irreverence all at once. Um, he's certainly been accused of being a very busy bass player. Of course, I think he originally was a guitar player, and he looked like McCartney. Yeah, way, yeah. Where he, he you know, he, he's a guitar player who was handed a bass, and Costello not being a real agile guitar player, it, it works out in the attraction's favor. 
that Bruce Thomas would be so active. Um, it's funny you mentioned the McCartney thing because uh, I, I, when I was setting everything up here, I was running some music from from my phone in through the board here, and uh, and it wasn't coming in uh, in complete stereo. It was like one side was coming in, and I thought it's really weird. The bass is like really prominent on this. What's going on here? And I I thought, oh well, let's just pan to the side where the bass is mixed a little heavier. But what I noticed on what song it was, I want to might have been beaten to the punch. The, the moment that I was actually listening to right then, the, the notes, the flurry of notes he was playing was very reminiscent of uh, the way that Paul would play on uh, like Taxman. Mm-hmm. And, and I just thought, oh, that, that makes total sense. Then that McCartney sort of feel. It does. I think he's the star uh, of the attractions here. He's a star attraction, so to speak. <laughs> the, the, star the, the, the chorus to Opportunity, he does this run. Uh, I don't know. Just play the chorus. You'll hear it. He just he, he just does this thing that just takes my breath away. And, and, and I just think that he's he's the bee's knees. Oh, so good. Can't fault any of these guys. They're all so damn good. No, no, no. They're a force to be reckoned with. They're, they're top notch. No, I love the time is tight lift. For temptation I, I just i think that's just a, a perfect i think he had something to say apparently he wrote it after seeing springsteen perform in nashville and he thought springsteen seemed to be at the end of his rope and was gonna was going crazy from his his fame but then costello realized no that's not happening to bruce i think it's actually mm-hmm. happening to me um apparently that's what that song was uh, always about um but and they could have done that song in any format that song is very very malleable really um but I just love the fact that they just, it seems like they heard Booker T and the MGs, they just started playing that song and then Costello just falls in singing and then everything else just falls into place. And I love that Costello and the attractions of Nick Lowe, they were never, it just shows how they never were precious about any of this material. Yeah. But the, there, were, there was no fixed way to do anything. And um, in fact, precious, just the way that they marketed this, the cover art, mislabeling things. <laughs> The whole thing is just so, it has such great whimsy to it. Considering Costello in his memoir is saying that this, if he was going to, if he was going to be some rock and roll casualty and actually die on the road somehow, this was about the time he, it was going to happen. <laughs> so, I mean, he really did, you know, put it that way. Um, also, so what's your what's your favorite to you? What's the most re-listenable track? Oh, most re-listenable track. Uh. Probably God, there's so uh, uh, I'd probably go with Riot Act. Uh, I mean, it is my favorite song, and, and it's probably because of the repeated, repeated, repeated listening. Um, mm. I, I remember a buddy of mine and I around 1990. Um, we went on a road trip together, and we were driving out to like Zion National Park and the Grand Canyon and all that. And we were mm-hmm. in, uh, we were driving my dad's pickup truck at the time, and we we both made mixtapes for the road. And mm-hmm. so his tape is loaded with. You know, the Smiths and the, the, and a bunch of like uh, mid, mid, late eighties, UK pop, new wave kind of stuff, you know, some of the darker stuff too. And, uh, and then my tape, uh, I remember I had, uh, had like, I think I I did these two songs back to back. I think I did, um, I was off of Paul McCartney's tug of war, uh, here today. Oh, sure. And then I went from that right into riot act.
And mm. and so I, I, re- I distinctly recall listening to these two songs on this tape with my buddy in the passenger seat while I'm flying down a totally deserted middle of the night black uh, sky. You know, there's no lights on the road or anything, and we're the only car out there. And I'm playing these songs that are just like soft and down and and he's like i think he might have even fallen asleep but i think he was just waiting for me to like put something a little more upbeat on but i was so fixated on um on riot act at the time i, I can never get tired of that one it's a toss-up for me i, I think it's between riot act and high fidelity and i think high fidelity just just noses it out a bit because it, it's just it's a it's a quicker tempo uh but it's got all the wordplay mm-hmm. and, and the melody and a great performance by the band uh, and um, I think that's the one for me that I think I can listen to over and over again if I had to just choose one. Also, there's a key line in, in the song The Imposter, which Costello always considered a complete waste of song, uh, other, other than the part where he says, uh, when I said that I was lying, I might have been lying. He said he scared himself when he wrote that one. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the, the opening line of Motel Matches Somewhere in the distance, I can hear who shot Sam. It was, I think, one of the first times he stayed in L.A. Uh, someone missed, informed him. They told him that he was staying in the same hotel room uh, or where Sam Cooke was staying and Sam was shot uh, fatally. Uh, so that's that's that reference of the, who shot Sam. But it's also a George Jones song. I don't know. I just, yeah, I just, I can't get, I can't get over the fact that he's able to combine so many things in such a, right. in, in such, such a brief amount of, of time and space. You know, and Motel Matches always reminds me, for some reason, of uh, Goodyear for the Roses, and maybe it's because of the the matches yeah. and the cigarette references. Oh, but I think those pair up pretty well. Mm, and then there's all, there's a George Jones connection too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. You know, and Elvis even talks about um, got on his iTunes uh, Originals EP. He talks about uh, motel matches a little bit. So to him, here's what the song's about. Motel Matches was originally written as a country and western song. Um, I was uh, nominated for a Grammy um, for, I think, Best New Artist in uh, 78. Um, and we were up against uh, Chic, which was pretty tall order to be up against Chic, the mighty Chic. And uh, Taste of Honey, you had a record called Boogie Oogie Oogie, and they won which was, you know, one of the great comic Grammy moments. I think we didn't even attend because I think we realized it was all a farce, uh, particularly in those days. I think it was a, we thought it was a farce and went and played the Palomino Club in Tar- Tarzana, which is a country western club. And I had a couple of new songs I'd written. We played mostly country western, George Jones covers, but I played this song Motel Matches and... Uh, it went that way for a while. It sounded sort of like a Doug Psalm song with a with an organ on it, but it sounded like some out of Texas because we had friends from down there. By this point, it was a little a few years into my career, two years. And uh, then when we came to record it, because we had got under this car R&B feel and Steve Nive laid down the piano, it's a song that uh, it's, it's got a lot of true story in it. So it's really just what it says. It's just about a, you know... Um, people meeting in the night in a motel it's not a complicated story thank you for that's great so when i did get into this record um it was like right after high school for me so this is late 80s Mm. and uh i remember you know needing to occasionally take my mom to a doctor's appointment or something and she'd get in my car my little uh 85 ford escort and i'd have my my uh, sony disc man plugged in through my tape deck and uh and which would always like whenever you hit a speed bump or anything CDs are skipping all over the place. But I remember uh, taking my mom somewhere once and I put in 
Get Happy on CD. And my mom's from Germany or her family's from Germany. And so she has a German background. And so she was raised with music in her home that reflected a lot of those cultural instrumentations. You know, um, she, she learned to play keyboard and we actually had one of those, uh, those Lowry keyboard organs that you would find at the, at the mall, you know, they'd have the, the Lowry organ shops. I don't know if you've ever yeah, seen those, cool. but yeah, so of she had one of those and it had those, you know, those built in, um, sort of drum machine sounds but not not like drum machines like we know <laughs> yeah. it but you know like those built in no, i know what you mean yeah, yeah and and really i always had fun playing with the speeds on those and the variations and everything but she would always be you know to find her happy spot she would sit down at that keyboard and start playing these little sort of polka-esque you know riffs on the organ and, th- and songs from that she remembers as a child and everything so putting in get happy and taking my mom to her doctor you know for me that's a it's a memory that really stands out um because she, she's, I remember her commenting on, on several of these songs. Um, oh. And I think it was mainly because of, of you know, like Steve Naive's sort of ice rink ballpark keyboard sound on several songs. Yeah, very much. Yeah. You know, so songs like Opportunity, Secondary Modern, <laughs> Clown Time is Over, Human Touch, those all had, those are songs that I remember her commenting on. And I thought, what in the hell is going on here? I'm not supposed to be like bonding with my parent like this. You know, like you're not supposed to like this new wave artist. But it was a, it was an album. Like you she know, was like hearing he, it, she was hearing it differently than you. She were. was totally hearing it differently. But yeah. I think that was Elvis's point is that he wanted to be heard differently too. So like he had a complete oh, ninety degree turn on how he wanted to sound, and that mm-hmm. that somehow caught the ear of my mom and me. You know, roughly at the same time. She didn't yeah. listen to this record as much as I did. But I just remember that, uh, you know, that being a little uh, a little way to bond with my mom. I thought, oh, well, let me turn that well, up a little bit. Sweet. Um, so it's very accessible um, with all the different styles in there. And, uh, you know, also for me, um, this is I think this is the album that initially got me to search out the Mercy Beats. Wow, yeah. And and to you know essentially I don't remember ever hearing a Mercy Beat song you know, on its own. I I, I certainly didn't, had never heard of them up until this album. Absolutely. I'm I'm with you on that. So yeah. all the covers that I heard were fantastic and I you know it's like I want to who did the original and to right. find out I can find them all in this one Mercy Beats collection. This is amazing. And then <laughs> this is what is it band? God, who else? Uh, was Sorrow a Mercy Beat song? Sorrow was a Mercy Beat song, yeah, which I, I, Bowie did, I learned from Bowie. Pinnacle. Yeah, on Pinnacle. Well, Bowie, but then also at the end of uh, It's All Too Much by the Beatles, George sings a snippet of Sorrow. And the record had, was only held right. out for a short time. That's right. So, so the Mercy Beats, yeah, get a lot. I mean, <laughs> they, they clearly had fans in high places. You know what I mean? Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. great. So yeah, I mean, just the, the, so the, I mean, the influence right there. I love when I love when I can discover other artists through, you know, whether it's like who who played on that track, and you look at the credits, and then oh, I got to see what else that guy's done. Sure. Well, this is like a case of these twenty songs. Two of them were covers, uh, sure. which would be "Can't Stand Up for Falling Down," which was originally a Sam and Dave song. It was the flip side mm-hmm. 
of the single Soothe Me from 67. And then, and then I stand accused, um, you know, by, which was actually by Tony Colton and the big boss band in July 65, but the Mersey beats did it in December of that year. And, and that's the version that I believe Costello pulled his from. I remember when I had my band and we would do that song at the song that was called at your place. And at the very end, you just kind of extend the ending as long as we could as fast as we could. (laughs) And I would have to come up with something to sing or scream or shout. And at one point I realized I could just spell out, I S T A N D A C C U S D D I C N D choose because I always love that moment when he does that. Um, and also another reference made on this record at the, the very first line of the song "Possession" is "If there's anything that you want, if there's anything yeah. that you need," yeah. which was lifted from a, 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 also a very obscure British band known as the Beatles. I've never heard of those guys. Um, yeah, they're, they're good. You should check them out. So uh, I, I, you know, I, I hope. Uh, most of our listeners are already familiar with this record and they listen to it and hopefully they're, they have their opinions and they can share them with us uh, as well. And if, if we have listeners that aren't familiar with this album, I'm begging them to give it a, a, a try uh, and, um, and, and uh, to let us know what they think, because uh, this album, no one can take this away from me. And it, it really, really shaped the way I looked at music and what I expected out of music. And, and, and for a long time, what I expected out of an album, that I kind of wanted an album to have a sonic identity. I wanted an album to challenge me. And it also it seemed like it would challenge the artists. I mean, 20 tunes, uh, it almost seems like they were challenging every, all the other yeah. bands at that time and uh i love sort of just this sort of the way it just lays down the gauntlet in a, in a weird way and oddly enough even though it, it was essentially recorded as a pastiche of something else it's one of his albums that i think that that has uh has lasted really really well it's aged really well it shouldn't it shouldn't because of the gimmick it really shouldn't but it, i think it does it's it's very accessible folks and and you can get it yeah. in, in in less than 50 minutes um, that's what two Ramones albums, I think right there. Um, but what I, yeah, another thing that's really cool about it is it, it, to me, it, rep- it, it almost doesn't feel like it came out when it came out. You know, it, it just feels like it's from another time. It's in a way kind of like what Spinal Tap did with their, uh, um, their, the soundtrack album where they, they basically were able to record songs that they had just written for this film and, and they, you know, they made them sound like the era that they needed to sound like. And Costello was definitely trying to, to pull the sound from the, the mid and late 60s the only thing that, that that really is is timely are the videos um like you said yeah. the only <laughs> the only two two singles were released off this album but there were as many as what like four videos How there, many videos? there were five videos uh Funny. the two singles which were uh i can't stand up for falling down in high fidelity so those two got videos or films and then new amsterdam possession and love for tender that's right. So, and the, and the, this is a great time for videos, much like the stuff from the armed forces. I think the Oliver's Army had a video, at least. And yeah. what's so funny about Peace Love? But these videos, uh, they're still very inspired by like monkeys episodes. Yeah, you know, and I wanted to ask you about this too because when I first got that uh, very best of Elvis Costello video collection on VHS mm-hmm. cassette, uh, I yeah. remember watching <laughs> all those, and those those films looked like they might have been shot on maybe even 16 millimeter or something. They don't, they don't look like really pristine at all. And they almost no, look it's like not done on videotape, but it's not videotape for sure. It's the, definitely on, on film. Yeah. The impression I got after watching all of those videos was, did they shoot all these in one weekend? 
It may be. It seems like they did. <laughs> it was just like at the same hotel. It was just like they would just go out to the beach and like. All right, let's go outside now. Just start running. Just right. start running. Do something. <laughs> just do stuff. Which they 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 probably lifted that from uh, Hard Day's Night. Maybe, but it feels it does feel very much like those like the the music sequence in Monkeys episodes, or it's like I think yeah. I heard Dave Grohl say recently about making videos. He says, he says, looks like you're making a little silent film. And when you think about it that way, like you're not, you know, other than the lip syncing part, which is also, you know, very silent film in a way. But the, the other, other than that, you're just kind of like, there's a guy with a camera. There's the four of us standing here. Just start doing stuff. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, a lot of the stuff they do doesn't have a whole lot to do with the music that's playing. And I, I in a lot of ways, I kind of prefer that. I mean, he's clearly worked really hard for his lyrics to be as evocative as possible. Yeah. So filming the lyric would be a little lame. You know, so the other thing, so I did mention that this whole album is like about 48 minutes long, 20 yeah. tracks. Now the, this episode's longer, I think it is. It is. <laughs> um, but if you flip the episode over, we're going to have the album on the backside of it. Oh, cool. Um, so there were reissues of this album um, that are. Worth, oh, my God. Yeah, I think I got two. Okay, there was one on, uh, there was one, the initial one was uh, from 1994, uh, reissued on Ryko Disc, who no longer exists either. I definitely had, got that one. Yeah, and that, that one I think had, I want to say it had 30 tracks, somewhere around there. So mm-hmm. you got you got some B-sides and uh, a couple demos, um, which is really cool. And then uh, it come 2007, or I'm sorry, 2003, uh, Rhino issued a two disc set. Um, I, think I, I think I got that. I one think too. that's the two disc one. <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, anyway, so the, the the second disc has something like uh, thirty tracks on it. Maybe it's ridiculous. Um, but but you're getting all the you're getting a lot of the early versions of songs that, like we mentioned earlier, sound like the sound they were carrying into this leading up to this record and which by the way i started to interrupt but by the way when they went on tour and did this album they pretty much reverted back to that sound again yes he, he couldn't play the microphone like he did in the studio they just they just couldn't sonically reproduce that old soul motown bass thing and i think once they just got in front of a live audience and Lord knows what they were ingesting on the road, they just fell back in their habits of playing everything really hyper speed yeah. and Costello singing. Like, you know, he just couldn't sing secondary modern down in that octave in that range so silently like he does on the record. He he ends up doing it up like almost a whole octave, I think. He just kind of belts the song out and it's fine. It just sort of loses a little of its soul. You know what would have been interesting is on that tour if they, you know, played songs off the new record, but then all the previous older songs that were part of the repertoire, maybe they rearranged those to match the Get Happy <laughs> stack sound. to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that, yes, I'll tell you, that band is so talented, they could have done it. They probably could have. Yeah. But so, yeah, a lot of these B-sides are, uh, and demos and, and alternate takes and stuff, they're really cool. You should really check them out. There's some live tracks, including uh, uh, the song that uh, they Elvis and the Attractions played at the Campuchia concert from the album <laughs> Concerts for Campuchia. Um, and also some tracks that you may have heard from previous collections that came out around that time called, uh, yeah. I think here in the States it was called Taking Liberties, but in the UK the CD was called Ten Bloody Marys and Ten How's Your Fathers. I, That's where you'll hear the slow version of Clown Time is Over. Yeah. Um, just a lot of drastically rearranged songs. That, but I mean, like, Girls Talk, he gives away to Dave, Dave Edmonds right around the exact same yeah, time, yeah. right? I mean, which is a, a proper hit for Dave Edmonds. I mean, 
Costello is just so prolific at the time. Uh, one of my favorite songs, which is a B-side from this era, is uh, Just a Memory, which oh, I think yeah. he wrote, he, he wanted Dusty Springfield to do, and I think she eventually did do it, but I love his recorded version of it. Um, oh, you get uh, Getting Mighty Crowded, the Betty Everett song? Great cover um, of that, yeah. There's, a, I think, a live version of The Temptations, Don't Look Back, but one of, the, one of my favorite B-sides of this period shows up on the Out of Our Idiot collection, uh, which was a UK. That's a great CD. collection, and it's by uh, JoJo Zepp and the Falcons, <laughs> which was an opening band in late '78 for the Attractions. Uh, I think an Australian group, and uh-huh. the song "So Young." Yeah, so there's again. That's like that's that's how I got into that group. Not I'm not that I'm heavily into that group, but it's like I wanted to seek out their album, which has never been put on CD. So you have to find the vinyl. You probably wouldn't have heard them nonetheless. I yeah. wouldn't have heard them. Like I wouldn't yeah. have heard the Mersey Beats. All right, listen. I think I think we've said enough for a side pod. I think we probably said too much for a side pod, but I'm glad I got to get all this out. Oh yeah, thanks <laughs> Thank for, you for suggesting it. Thanks for being my counterpunch, man. Thanks, Dave. Great job. Get get happy. Forty years. Forty years. What a yeah. time, what a time. And if we, if we didn't sell the album for you, maybe Elvis can do it himself. Hey, music lovers. I'm Elvis Costello and the Attractions, and I want you to get happy. Get happy is our new long-playing record. This album comes to you with 10 tracks aside, 20 tracks in all, 20 guaranteed hits. Comes in a color sleeve, on genuine vinyl, and full stereophonic Delphi sound. Look at these hits. We want you to get happy at your stores now. Get happy at your shops now.